Today's reading is from the book of Revelation. Revelation 21, verse 1 to 22, and Revelation 5, verse 22 and 17. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He is dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and that shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the detestable as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels, who had seven bowls of full of seven last plague, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and show me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its regions like most rare Jew, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and, as the, and at the gates twelve gate angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square. Its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, stadia. Its length and width and height and height equal. He also measured its wall, 124 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper. The city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation of the wall of the city were a dome 
adorn and every kind of jewel. The first was Jasper, the second Sapphire, the third Agate, the, third, the fourth Emerald, the fifth Onyx, the sixth Carnelian, the seventh Chrysolite, the eighth Beryl, and the ninth Tophus, the tenth Chrysoprase, the eleventh Jacinth, the twelfth Amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for each temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its Lamb is the Lamb. By its light will, be, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nation. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Revelation 22, verse 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street in the city also. On either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And Revelation 22 verse 17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come! And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires the take the water of life without price. This is the reading of the word. Thank you, Anna. What an encouraging reading. Well, church, we have finally made it to the end of the book of Revelation. Can you even believe it? Uh, we today will have a Q&A time after the sermon. So if you have questions during the sermon, you can send them to Les through Zoom chat. And as we start today's sermon, I wanna ask you a question. If you could create a place that's the ideal place for you to live, what would this place involve? Would you want luxury and abundance and no more poverty? Would you want neighbors who are kind and caring and for no crime in the area? How many of you would want the convenience of a city? Would anyone want the convenience of a city? Would anyone want the, the unspoiled beauty of nature? Few people for each. Would anyone want both the convenience of the city and the beauty of nature and you're torn about which one you'd choose because typically cities destroy nature and, and nature lacks the convenience of cities? 
What if you could make your ideal place have all the convenience of a city, but with all the beauty of the nature? Would that be something you would want? We've got some clapping going on here. Yeah. What if you could eradicate disease and pain and death? Would that be part of the ideal place you'd want to live in? Is that something that's appealing to you? Does, does all of this sound a bit too good to be true? Well, this type of place is exactly what we're promised in the closing chapters of Revelation. And we're going to look at these chapters today. And what we'll see is that God has an eternity of blessing for those who overcome. And we'll have four questions about this place. What is it? What's there? What isn't there? And how do we get in? But before we look at it, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chance to look at your word today and to learn more about who you are and the promises that you've given us. And I pray that you would be speaking to our hearts today, that, that this glimpse of the future that you have for us would give us strength and hope and encouragement today to help us through whatever trials we're facing, God. And I pray that you would be honored through us as a church, that you would help us to love you and love one another more because of this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're shown this blessed eternity as a new heavens and a new earth in today's passage. And I realize as I say new, that's not new in the sense that God's thrown out the original heaven and earth and now is starting from scratch. No, that would be him admitting defeat, conceding that Satan has really messed up this world so badly that it just can't be made right. Instead, the picture is more like if the universe is a quilt and God is pulling this quilt apart stitch by stitch so that every stain and every crooked stitch that's been brought into this quilt by, by sin can be removed. And then it's going to be rewoven into the beautiful quilt that God always meant for it to be. All the old stuff is made new. And the whole world is made new. But the view in these chapters really zeroes in on this one city, the new Jerusalem. I've been mentioning in the past few weeks, that the closing chapters of Revelation, they're often referred to as a tale of two cities. We've looked recently at Babylon, the first city, it's referred to as the prostitute. Babylon, the cities of this world, they promise us everything. They promise us the world, but they tell us in order to get it, we need to reject God. The cities of this world, they're beautiful, but there's blood on their hands and all they can offer us is filth and death. They tell us we can have everything God promises us if only we work hard enough to earn it and deserve it for ourselves, which probably is going to require us to manipulate and misuse other people along the way. It's all a lie. But the city in the closing two chapters of Revelation, this new Jerusalem, this is the second city in that tale of two cities. And this new Jerusalem is the contrast to Babylon in every way. From the beginning of the Bible, Babylon's constant strategy has been to reach up to God through human effort. Like think of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. They wanted to build a tower that could reach up to God so they would have fame and security forever. And of course, God stopped their work because no matter how hard humanity tries, we can never get to God through our effort. But every city since has worked the exact same way, hasn't it? Like, isn't that how Hong Kong works? You work your way to the top. You prove your worth. You make us believe that you belong here through your effort and your accomplishment. You tear down others and climb over their dead bodies to make your way to the top. And then once you're there, you donate lots of money to get your name on the biggest towers so you'll be remembered by future generations. Is Babel 
2.0 or probably 2000.0 because it's the same way that every city operates. But look at one of the first things we're told about the new Jerusalem in chapter 21, verse two, it comes down out of heaven from God. The new Jerusalem, it's not about our effort. It's not about our accomplishment and how well we can climb our way up to God. It's about God graciously lowering himself to be with us. It's a gift. And it's a blessing. The new Jerusalem is called the holy city. It calls us to live in a way that honors God and blesses others, not in a way that that uses others or sees them as obstacles like the cities of this world. The new Jerusalem is the new and better contrast to all the lies the world's been telling us about where to find the good life. It's a place that offers us true blessing and true abundance forever. And these chapters, they zero in on this city specifically because this city is the ideal city. If you go way back to the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter one and two, God made humanity, he put humanity in a garden and he told them to fill the earth and subdue it. And if you know the story of the Bible, you know that sin, us trying to put ourselves in God's place and rule our own lives, came in and totally messed up everything before Adam and Eve made it too far on that one. But think about what would have happened if Adam and Eve had continued without sin and and they'd submitted to God's rule and they'd followed God's command to fill the earth and subdue it. What would that have looked like? Well, they would have expanded out from their original location, needing more and more buildings to house all their kids and their grandkids. They would have made technological advances that allowed them to create taller buildings and build infrastructure. They would have developed a system of commerce where people were able to specialize their skills so they can benefit the whole community through being really good at different things. They they would have expanded from a garden into a city. And without the stain of sin, think about what that city would have been like. It would have been friendly and supportive with each person trying to make life better for everyone else who lived there. It would have been the most ecologically friendly green city ever. Like, I think in our world, we tend to want the unspoiled beauty of the country and the convenience of the city, and they tend to be at odds with one another. But without sin in the world, they would have been able to figure out how to bring them together. They wouldn't have built a city that operated by ravishing the planet. They would have built a garden city where we get all the community and diversity and convenience of a city, but also that unspoiled beauty of nature. Wouldn't that be an awesome place to live? Doesn't sin just suck for ruining that. But guess what? These closing chapters of Revelation tell us that that garden city, the ideal city is coming. When sin spoiled the earth and brought pain and toil and corruption and death, that wasn't the end of God's garden city dream. No, the entire story of the Bible is the story of God working and calling a people to himself and and rescuing us so that he can make all things new and restore the world, not just people, but all of creation to the way it's meant to be. And that's what we're promised here in these chapters. So we're going to look a little more at some of the specific things that are going to be in this city and what's going to be there and what it's going to be like. And we're going to start by asking, what is there? And man, it's going to be an awesome, awesome place to live. Like one of the most famous things is going to be there, extravagant wealth and abundance. Probably the most famous part of this wealth and abundance is the fact that chapter 21, verse 21 tells us the streets are made of gold. Think of a place so wealthy that its streets are made of gold. 
And, and let me point out three things about this. First, if this is the future that awaits Christians, it should make us incredibly generous people today, no? Like if your eternity is a place so lavish and luxurious that gold is common enough to be a paving stone, a place where you're never going to lack anything or need or desire anything that you can't get right away. If that's what your future holds, then there's no need for us to stockpile today because today's wealth won't last, but this greater wealth that God promises us will. Second, did you notice this scene is far more luxurious than it even appears at first glance? Like the streets aren't made of just any gold as if that wasn't fancy enough. This is something like gold, but beyond John's ability to comprehend. Do you see how he describes it? It's pure gold, like transparent glass. Have any of you ever seen gold that's clear like glass? No, because it doesn't exist in our world. John sees something that is beautiful and extravagant and luxurious beyond what we can even comprehend on earth. And it's just common and, ever, and every day there. And then the third thing is that the streets are really just the beginning of the luxury of this city. Did you notice in 2118, it's not just the streets that are made of this crazy clear gold. It's actually the entire city is made of it. The entire city is made of gold that's luxurious and clear like glass. And did you see what the walls and the foundation and the gates are all made of? They're all precious jewels. The walls are made of jasper, which if you Google it, you'll see this reddish rock made out of quartz. Jasper in our world is not typically clear. Clear jasper is an incredibly rare stone that jewelers will search for and collect. But here there's clear jasper, clear as crystal, verse 11 says. And this jasper just makes up the city walls. There's so much of it, such an abundance that they build the walls of the city out of it. And then the foundations of the wall are covered in 12 different kinds of jewels. They're just put out there in, in easy grasp of anyone who wants to chip it off and take it, but they don't need to worry about that because there is no one who's going to come along and chip off the jewels and steal them from the foundations. And then the gates, each gate is a pearl. Yes, a singular pearl, each gate. Can you imagine a pearl big enough for people to walk through? or take a cart through, that would be amazingly, amazingly expensive. This city is a place of luxury and extravagance beyond our wildest dreams. But that's not all. The city also has more. It has the river of life and the tree of life. They're both in the city. And again, to understand the significance of this, you have to know your Old Testament. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God makes Adam and Eve. He puts them in the Garden of Eden, and he puts all sorts of trees in this garden. But there are two really special trees. The first is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the one Adam and Eve were banned from eating, but they still ate from. And it brought sin and death and chaos into the world. The other special tree was the tree of life, and this tree would make them live forever if they ate from it. And actually, the tree of life is the real reason that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Did you know that? Because after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, in your sinful state, eating from the tree of life, becoming immortal, is the worst curse possible for you, because it would keep you trapped in the brokenness and decay and despair of your sin forever. 
And so because God loved them, he banned them from the garden. He kicked them out to protect them from eating from the tree of life and bringing that curse on themselves. And then that tree of life never reappeared in the entire Bible until right here at the very end of the story. It's back. And it's no longer banned in the new heavens and new earth because eating from it is no longer a curse. Instead, it's a blessing. It's leaves, we're told, bring healing to the nations. And if you remember the story from Genesis and you're concerned, but this tree, it's a curse. What's going to happen? The very next verse, chapter 22, verse 3, tells us nothing, no longer will there be anything accursed there. This tree that used to be a threat and a curse to us, it's now going to be a blessing to us because nothing accursed will be there. This tree will be for us, for blessing and for healing for us. And this tree of life is watered by the river of the water of life. And again, this tree is so extravagant and abundant. Did you notice as we read about this tree, there's not just one type of fruit that grows on it. 12 different types of fruit grow on it. One different type of fruit for every single month. Just one bite of one of those fruits would let us live forever. But God builds in variety and has this tree continually bearing different types of fruits just because he can. God loves to create abundance and variety and beauty and make things awesome and exciting for his people because he loves to bless. And this is going to be a place of blessing. But of course, the greatest thing of all that's going to be in this city is God himself. Did you see what chapter 22 verse 4 says? They will see his face. What a promise is that? Back again in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, God saves the Israelites from being slaves in Egypt through miracles. And he brings them out into the wilderness and he brings them to the mountain where he's going to give them the law and teach them how to follow and worship him. And God speaks the Ten Commandments to his people. They all hear his voice. And then he has Moses go up the mountain to get commands about how to worship God. And the Israelites, they're waiting down below for Moses to come down and tell them, how do we worship God? And then while they're waiting, they get bored. And they build a golden calf and start worshiping that instead. And God is furious with them. So furious that he says, I'm going to wipe out the nation. I'm going, to, I'm going to destroy them all, Moses. I'm going to start over with you, make a new nation out of your family. And Moses prayed to God until God promised not to do that and to continue going with the nation of Israel and guarding them and being their God. And when God agreed to this, Moses said, God, I want you to prove to me that you're going to keep your promise. And I want you to prove it by showing me your glory, the full greatness of who you are. And God told Moses, no because no one can see my face and live. So God has Moses hide in a rock as God walks past. And then God, Moses hears God speak and he sees the back of God, which is amazing enough in and of itself that Moses's face started to glow like a flashlight afterwards. But ever since that encounter, the great dream of all God's people is that we would be able to see him face to face that we would be able to get God to say yes to what he told no for Moses, that we could see his face without dying. And John is telling us here, the day where that dream comes true is coming. 
One day that dream will be fulfilled and we will see God face to face. And it won't just be a glimpse like Moses asked for. It will be forever. And really all the other stuff in this city and the new heavens and new earth is great. But the presence of God is the ultimate thing that makes this city worth being in. It'll make it wonderful and something that we'll look forward to being in each new morning for eternity. But the city is not just great because of the things that will be in it. It's also great because some of the things that won't be in it. And so what isn't in this city? Well, first off, there's no temple there. And this is because the temple is the place where you go to meet God. But you don't need a temple anymore if God is living with you. But there's something even more going on here. Look at the measurements of the city in chapter 21, verse 16. It says its length and width and height are equal. What does that mean about the shape of the city? If its length and width and height are equal, that means the city is a perfect cube. Now, the measurements are probably symbolic. We've been seeing lots of symbolism in Revelation. If these measurements were literal, the city would extend about six times higher into the sky than the International Space Station travels at as it flies around the Earth. So probably symbolic. But why this imagery? Why these symbols? Why are cubes important? Do you know where cubes show up in the Bible? There's one place where the cubes constantly show up in the Bible, and it's in the Holy of Holies, that special inner room in the temple where no one could go except for one person once per year because God, his presence, dwelled in that room. There's no temple in this new city because the city itself is the temple, or more accurately, the whole world is the new temple, and this city is the Holy of Holies within that new temple. It's the place where God lives, and that's why there's no temple there. You know what else won't be there? This is going to be awesome. No more tears, and nothing that would cause tears. There's no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. We see in chapter 21, verse 1, that the sea, the great symbol of chaos throughout the Bible, is no more. We see in 22, verse 5, that night, the place of physical and spiritual darkness, will be no more. There's nothing left to cause tears. And I realize our city is going through a really tough time right now. I think a lot of people in our city want to cry because they feel so overwhelmed with fear, either fear of the virus or fear of the things the government's doing to try to stop the virus. But so many people are just avoiding crying right now by shutting down their emotions. And if that's you, if you're like, I want to cry, but I just feel like I can't, I'm just trying to shut everything down so I don't have to, please talk to someone from the church and just share about how you're feeling because there's so much power in just being able to name our feelings and our fears and bring them to God. But if you've ever tried this approach of shutting down your emotions before, you know it doesn't work. Even if you don't recognize that you're feeling these emotions, your body still feels every single last one of them. Your muscles get tense and stiff. You constantly feel on edge, ready to lash out at whoever sets you off, which these days is probably your spouse or kids if you have them because they're the ones you're around the most. If you keep it up long enough trying to shut down your emotions and hold in the tears, you eventually just become numb to the world, unable to feel things, anything, even things like happiness that you want to feel. In the midst of the brokenness of our world, living without tears is often a toxic way of existing that causes more harm than good. 
But when we talk about how there will be no more crying in the new Jerusalem, it's for a totally different reason. It's not that we just shut off our emotions and live in numbness forever. No, it's that any possible source of sadness or tears has ceased to exist. So all that's left to feel is joy and happiness and excitement and awe and wonder. Even the remaining sadness we have with us when we arrive is going to be wiped away. And it won't be wiped away by a servant. It will be wiped away by God himself. God won't delegate that task. Like you do when your child trips and falls and scrapes their knee, God's going to, he's going to kneel down. He's going to look you directly in the eyes. He's going to reach up and grab your face and wipe away the tears. He's going to tell you everything is going to be okay. But unlike you, God actually has the power to ensure that everything he's promising will stay true forever, that it really will be okay forever. Think about how wonderful of a place this will be, just based on the things that won't be there. There's no more death, no more vaccine pass, no more mandatory testing, no more mask mandate, no more quarantine, no more government isolation facilities, no more kids being taken away from their parents for hospitalization, actually no more need for hospitals at all, no more group gathering bans, no more travel bans, No more leave home safe app. Yes? Is anyone excited for that? I am. It's going to be a place of complete safety. Did you see it says the gates never close? There are no enemies who want to harm the city and that need to be kept out. No Russian army invading across the border. There's no more war. Anything and anyone that could spoil the goodness of the city just won't be there. There will be no more cause for tears. Which brings us to one more thing that won't be in this city. Evil or wicked people. Chapter 21, verse 27 tells us nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. And 21.8 expounds a bit more on the type of people who won't make it into this city. The cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. People who through their actions would bring harm and chaos and destruction and tears into the city will just be kept out so the city can be the perfect place it was always meant to be. But let's just take a minute and see what that means for us. Let's look at idolaters. What's an idolater? I would guess most of us, maybe some do, but I would guess most of us don't have statues in our homes that we bow down and worship on a regular basis. And if you don't, you may feel like, oh, well, idolaters, that doesn't apply to me. But check out this definition of idols given to us by theologian N.T. Wright. He says, an idol is what you get when you snatch at something good, something you're actually promised, but in your own way rather than God's way and without waiting for the right moment. Have you ever done that? Have you ever snatched at something good that you've been promised, but in your own way and timing rather than God's? Maybe it's that place of belonging and comfort and acceptance that we're promised in this passage. God has promised us these things. They're not bad things. They're good things he wants to give to us. But so often we don't want to wait for his timing, or maybe we don't know his word well enough to know that these things have been promised to us. 
and we want that belonging and comfort and acceptance. And so we start sleeping with our significant other before we're married because we deserve that comfort and that place of belonging. And we're going to get it our way. We're going to get it in our timing so we can be sure we don't miss out on it. That's idolatry. And according to this passage, it means we shouldn't be allowed into the city. Or, or maybe our desires for the wealth and abundance were promised in this passage. God's promised us wealth and abundance. They're not bad things, but we don't want to wait for the future and God's promise. So when we show up for a test in school and we know we're not prepared, we're afraid we're going to get a bad grade and it's going to hurt our chance to get into a good school in the future. And that's going to mean we can't get a good job and then we won't be able to earn enough money. So what do we do? We start copying answers from someone else who knows what they're doing on the exam. That's idolatry. That's taking something good, but getting it in our own way, in our own timing. And according to this passage, if we do that, it means we shouldn't be allowed to enter this city of blessing. We're all idolaters on some level. And therefore, we all deserve to be banned from this city. Or another group, the cowardly and unbelieving. One commentator says this about these groups. The cowardly and unbelieving are not just unbelievers in general, but more precisely, those who have claimed to belong to the covenantal church community, but who, driven by fear of humans rather than God, have compromised in the face of persecution. Have you ever called yourself a Christian, but then backed down from standing up for Jesus because you were afraid others would make fun of you for, their, for your faith? That's being cowardly and unbelieving. And according to this passage, it means you shouldn't be allowed to enter the city. Or how about lying? The word for lying here isn't limited to just saying things that are completely false. It, it actually applies to any use of our words to intentionally mislead others. So back in my single days, there was this girl. I thought she had a crush on me. And so I asked one of my friends, do you think this girl likes me? And my friend said, no, no, of course not. I later learned that the girl did have a crush on me. And she had spoken to my friend already about the fact that she had a crush on me. So I went back to my friend and I called him out for lying to me. Like, you knew, why did you lie? Why did you say no? And he said, I didn't lie. You asked if I thought she liked you. I didn't think she liked you. I knew she liked you. So I told the truth. Now by the most technical of technicalities, he may be able to say he wasn't a liar. But what he did absolutely falls under what this is talking about when it says liars. It's, it's using your words, twisting your words to misrepresent the truth and make, make people think you're saying something totally different than what's actually true. Have you ever used your words like that? Said something that's technically true, but that's meant to be completely misleading? I know I have. And according to this verse, that means you and I should not be allowed into this wonderful city. Or one more group, the sexually immoral. The Greek word there is pornos. It's where we get our word pornography from. It's not limited to pornography. It's definitely much wider than that, but it definitely includes it. So according to this passage, watching porn is enough that it makes us unworthy to enter this city. Now, I don't know about you, but but I fit into several of these categories we've just looked at. And that leaves us with a problem because this city is perfect. It's 
It's somewhere we all want to be, but according to the standard of justice, none of us belong there. We all fit into multiple categories on the list of types of people that won't be allowed in. And we could complain that God should just change the rules or lower his standards so we can get in, but that would actually defeat the point of the city. Because the whole point of the city is that it's a place of goodness and perfection. And to let us in with, with all of our ways of using and abusing and manipulating and hurting people would actually corrupt the city and stop it from being perfect. Theologian N.T. Wright points out that banning people like us from this paradise is necessary for the same reason that one does not allow smoking in a library or the playing of radios in a concert hall. That which ruins the beauty and holiness of God's new city is ruled out by definition. I mean, think about it. If you allow smoking in a library, it's only a matter of time until the whole thing burns down and no one can enjoy it anymore. If you allow people to play radios in a concert hall, no one can enjoy the music they actually came to listen to. And in the same way, if you allow us in this new Jerusalem or the new heavens and new earth, as we are right now, all the goodness and beauty of the city will be destroyed. Which leaves us with what might be our most pressing question of all in this, how do we get in? And the answer is it's not through anything we do. Getting to God through our own efforts, it's the way of the old city, Babylon, the prostitute. And we've already seen that way leads to death, but this city is different. We don't work and earn our way to God. It's all a gift. And we see this pointed to over and over again throughout the passage. Look at chapter 22, verse 17. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Do you see who's invited into the city? It's not the strong. It's not the accomplished. It's not the straight A student. It's not the managing director. It's not the one who's proved his or her worth. It's not the one who's earned it. It's the thirsty. Those who have nothing. Those who can't even get themselves the basic necessities of life and they know it. Those are the ones who are invited to come and find all their needs met by the generosity of God. So church, how thirsty are you today? Do you still feel like maybe you can meet the standard on your own if you just try a little bit harder, like you're okay? If so, then you're not ready yet. You're not thirsty enough. This city is only for those who know they can't do it on their own and who throw themselves completely on the generosity of God. Or again, we saw that this city is the holy of holies, the place where God dwells with his people. And throughout the Bible, entry into the holy of holies was restricted. Only one person, the high priest, could enter once per year, and he could only enter after he had made a sacrifice because he was a sinner and something had to pay the price for his sin before he could get into God's presence. The priest could not enter the holy of holies on his own merit, but only under the covering of blood that had washed him clean. And guess what? The rules of admission are exactly the same for this new Holy of Holies. It's not limited to one person once per year. It's open to anyone who wants any time, but the price of entry is still blood. But the price has been paid by Jesus. Chapter 22, verse 14, we didn't read it in our scripture reading today, but it says, blessed are those who wash their robes 
so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. We must wash our robes to get in. And how do we wash our robes? Well, Revelation 7.14 tells us they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. When we trust in Jesus as our perfect sacrifice, he cleanses us from all of our guilt, all our shame, all our uncleanness, all our unworthiness. His sacrifice alone makes us fit to enter the city. He makes us new. Getting in requires a sacrifice, but we have the perfect sacrifice in Jesus. And that's a great promise and a great blessing, but it also comes with quite a restriction. Look at chapter 22, verse 14 again. Blessed are those who enter by the gates. If we're going to get into this wonderful, blessed city, we must come in the right way, the way God has chosen and appointed. Jesus isn't just one option of how to get to God. He's not simply the option that works for me, but maybe you have another one that works for you. No, Jesus is the only way to get into this city. So if you're relying on any other way today, even if you say you believe in Jesus, but you realize in your heart on a day-to-day basis, your hope really rests in something else. You need to repent and place your complete hope in Jesus alone. Enter by the gate. But for those who trust in Jesus, we have security. None of our failures will keep us from the future that God promises us. Church, God doesn't tell us about this amazing future reality as as a way of messing with us, getting our hopes up so he can just let us down. No, he tells us about it because he wants us to know that it's true. For those who trust in Jesus, this future is ours. Today, we get small glimpses of it here and there, but one day it will be the only thing filling our vision forever. And when we live today with this future in mind, it changes us. Seeing the wealth and abundance that God has for us makes us generous today. Seeing the joy God has for us gives us hope, even in really tough times. Seeing God's generosity to us in Jesus leads us to seek to know him and trust him more each day. So church, let us be a people who live today with this future constantly in focus. So that in the day of judgment, God will look at us and see people who overcame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and the promises you make to us and that you don't just make these promises, but that you're going to keep these promises. Thank you that you love us and you guard us and you protect us. I pray that you would give us strength to overcome today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if anyone has questions, go ahead and send them in to Les on the Zoom chat. And we will give you a few seconds to do that. And then Les can start asking whatever questions have come in.
Thank you, Eric, for that wonderful message, that closing message from the book of Revelation. It's been quite the journey uh, studying Revelation together. Um, I know for myself, I've learned so much in the past few weeks. Um, and thank you, Eric, for always being open to questions. I think you're one of the only pastors I know who opens up question and answer session after after uh, sermons. Okay, let's uh, let's see. We got some messages here. Uh, I have I have a couple very interesting questions. The first All one right. is this, uh, Eric. Do you think the streets of gold and jewels in the New Jerusalem are real, or like the rest of the Book of Revelation, symbolic? Um, I mean, I think on some level they would. On some level, I mean, gold that's clear like glass doesn't exist in our world, right? So I think, I think it's real and literal that there will be abundance and prosperity there. I think if we try and draw pictures ourselves based on what we understand in this world, it's not going to be a literal one-to-one -one correlation. Um, and so it's not necessarily literal in that sense, but I think the idea of, of abundance and prosperity that it is conveying to us is definitely real. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, next question I have here is, do you think we will play sports in heaven? <laughs> um, I don't see why not. I mean, I think, um, you know, God, God gave us bodies, right? Like, um, I think there's been this, this misunderstanding over the years that, that said like the body is bad and the physical world is bad and the spiritual is what's really good and important. Um, but actually, if you look back to Genesis, like God made the physical world, not just the spiritual world. And if you look forward to the passage we were just looking at, this is a very, very physical existence um, that God gives us new bodies to live in this new physical city. Um, and so I think if we have bodies and we're living in this city, then I, I don't see why things that we enjoy on the earth, like sports wouldn't be part of life there. Um, yeah, I think there would probably be a little bit more uh, loving competition rather than angry competition if there's sports. Um, and I think if there aren't sports, it's only because they've been replaced by something better. Cool. Yeah. Where everyone's a winner. Yeah. <laughs>